This is episode 16 of The Investor's Podcast. Broadcasting from Bel Air, Maryland, this is The Investor's Podcast. They'll read the books and summarize the lessons. They'll test the waters and tell you when it's cold. They'll give you actionable investing strategies. Your host, Preston Pish and Stig Broderson. All right. How's everybody doing? Hopefully you had a Merry Christmas out there. And today we've got a special guest for you. And his name is Alex Bryan. And he's an analyst covering passive strategies on Morningstar's manager research team. Uh, he's led teams of analysts and covers U.S. value, growth, and material sector funds. Uh, prior to assuming his current role in 2012, uh, Brian was a project manager with Morningstar. Uh, he was also a senior data analyst and oversaw in the launch of Morningstar's benchmark data service by acting as a liaison between uh, China and institutional clients back here in the United States. Uh, he holds a bachelor's degree in economics and finance from the Washington University and graduated magna cum laude. And he also holds a master's degree in business administration with high honors from University of Chicago's Booth School of Business, which is an outstanding school. Uh, so I think we can confidently say that Alex really knows what he's talking about. And we are very excited to have him on the show to talk about finance and investing securities. So, uh, Alex, one of the things that I really like to do is separate my broker uh, from my analyst tools and resources. And so with that said, I'm a huge fan of Morningstar. I use Morningstar all the time because I don't feel like I'm getting biased information and feedback and like some brokers trying to sell me something. I feel like I'm getting very unbiased information. And so I, for anybody out there listening, that is my primary resource. I think that the Bloomberg terminal is a little overpriced at uh, 30K. So um, I think Morningstar offers a good solution to a lot of people out there, provides some, some good resources. And so we're very excited to have you on the show and representing Morningstar. So just I wanted to throw that out there. Thanks for having me. So uh, what we'll do, uh, Alex, is we'll just uh, kick this off and Stig has the very first question. So uh, go ahead and fire away, Stig. So, Alec, we're really thrilled to have you. And as you probably know, that one of the reasons why we, we were so uh, big on having you was that you are an expert in ETFs. Um, so, a lot of people probably heard about ETFs. A lot of people probably heard about uh, mutual funds. And, and it might, be, might not be reasonable to say what is the difference between ETFs and mutual funds because there are so many and there come in so many varieties. But if you can just draw up the big lines. So... Why should I invest, for instance, in an ETF and not in the mutual fund? Sure. So let's uh, first start off by comparing how an ETF and a mutual fund work. With a mutual fund, an investor will basically give money to a fund company to manage. In return, the investor receives shares in the fund. Uh, the portfolio manager then uses that money to purchase individual securities for the portfolio. When an investor wants to take money out of that fund, the portfolio manager may have to sell securities in the portfolio to raise cash uh, for the investor. This could force um, realized capital gains, which the fund is then required to distribute to all of its investors. So even if investors don't sell their mutual fund, they could be hit with capital gains tax liabilities. And that's true of any capital gains that a fund realizes. So mutual funds don't tend to be the most tax efficient vehicle. They also have to maintain individual client account records, which can increase their administrative expenses. Now, in contrast, an investor who wants to purchase an ETF usually does so from another investor on an exchange, so the fund company doesn't get involved, and that improves tax efficiency because if I decide to sell my shares in the ETF, the portfolio manager doesn't have to sell securities in the portfolio uh, to 
to satisfy my cash needs. They also don't need to maintain individual client accounts, and that can reduce their administrative costs. So there's two benefits of ETFs over mutual funds. One, they tend to be more tax advantaged, and two, they can potentially be lower cost. And you know, it's funny, we're, Stig and I are reading this book on Tony Robbins right now. Um, kind of a long read for, I think, the content that's in it. But in general, there's some nuggets in there that I that I found really interesting. And one of them was this idea of, I mean, he he just pounds mutual funds in this book and how how much worse they perform than a regular index or ETF, like you're saying. And he says that 96% of actively managed mutual funds underperform the market. And just, I mean, that, that number is huge, 96% underperform the market. He says, additionally, 49% of fund managers don't even have a dollar in the funds that they're managing. Um, do you see more and more people stepping away from mutual funds? And do you see them uh, as a dying financial instrument as we move into the future? Mm-hmm. Uh, the percentage that you cited of actively managed funds that underperform the market seems a little high to me. Um, actually, based on Morningstar data, I found that 27% of active managers in the large blend category uh, outperformed the S&P 500 over the past decade. Now that's that's still pretty low, and that's before taxes, you know? So and index investing does tend to be more tax efficient than active uh, management because it requires lower turnover. So after taxes, it's likely that even fewer than 27% uh, outperformed. After you adjust for risk and style tilts, which investors can replicate with an index fund, even fewer active managers show any evidence of skill. So I think that that 4% or the 96% figure that you cited of managers who underperform the market, that's probably adjusting for things like style tilts and the amount of risk managers take. But yeah, in I, any I, case... Yeah, I agree. I think that it was adjusted for all those those factors. Right. But in any case, there's a lot of evidence that suggests that ma- active managers in general have a very difficult time of outperforming the market. In order to understand why, it's important to understand that active management is a zero-sum game. So in order for one investor to outperform the market, someone else has to underperform. So in aggregate, because active managers or active investors are defining the market, before fees, their asset-weighted performance should be very similar to a representative indexes. But after fees, because active managers charge more than an index fund does, they should lag on average. And I think that's why you see most active managers underperforming their index. And and the thing I think a lot of people don't realize is when you're one or two percent difference from what the market's performing, and then you compound that over a 30, 40 year period, you're talking hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars for people. And I, I really think that the, the, it's very delusional for a lot of people because they're like, oh, well, it's just a one percent fee that I'm paying for somebody to actively manage my fund. And they don't really realize that. A, he's not outperforming an index, and B, that 1% really adds up to a lot of dollars in the long run. So, yeah, that's that's some very interesting points. Uh, Absolutely. And and also, I'd like to mention that, um, so this distinction between active and passive is an an important one, and I think there's a really strong case to be made for uh, taking a passive approach to investing because of these cost savings. But that's not the same thing as saying that mutual funds as a vehicle don't have any future left in them. In fact, I was looking at the flows into mutual funds, uh, looking at uh, the division between active mutual funds and passive mutual funds, and actually passive mutual funds, funds that track an index, have actually uh, had a lot of money flowing into them, while active mutual funds have had a lot of money flowing out of them. So investors, you know, 
it's not really an important distinction whether you go with the ETF vehicle or the mutual fund vehicle. It's a more important distinction whether you go with an active strategy or a passive strategy. Now, it's true, most mutual funds do tend to be actively managed, but there are some good low-cost uh, passive index mutual funds that are available to investors. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's become really popular in, in the last, uh, I know back in the nineties, you'd have to pay two and a half percent just to get into a mutual fund. Then you'd have another 2% annual fee. I mean, it was just crazy. And I think that because of the competitive nature, and I think that so many people have realized that, uh, you know, a lot of these mutual funds are not outperforming the, the, an index or the market in general, that they've had to bring those fees down or else it was just going to be a, a total collapse of the whole you know, vehicle, the mutual fund vehicle. But hey, Stig, go ahead and go with the uh, third question. Um, okay, Alex. So while most active managers don't outperform after fees, there are a lot of ETFs that deviate from market cap waiting in an attempt to outperform traditional indexes. Do any of these funds have any merits? Sure. So, um, you know, there are a few strategies that have historically worked well in nearly every market studied over long time horizons. So I'll briefly summarize some of these. So there's value, buying assets that are cheap. You know, Warren Buffett is, is known for doing that. Uh, there's quality, buying stocks with uh, strong profitability and stable earnings. Low volatility, buying uh, stocks that haven't moved around a lot, but tend to be more defensive and uh, can weather the business cycle of grace. Um, and that's related to quality to a certain extent. And then there's momentum, which is uh, buying assets that have recently outperformed. Now, there's a long and interesting literature on why these strategies work, uh, but most explanations center around risk. So, you know, a strategy of buying stocks that, that are cheap could be, uh, in fact, taking on more risk. And so you would expect to be compensated for that risk in the form of higher expected returns. So, for example, a company like um, Sears may look very cheap, but there's a risk that it could become cheaper or go out of business. So if I buy a portfolio of stocks that are cheap, I may expect to earn higher returns for taking on that risk. The other explanation is that there could be behavioral biases that create mispricing in stocks. So investors may extrapolate past growth too far into the future, and that could potentially push prices away from their fear of value. So if investors are really excited about what's going on with Amazon with all its growth, they may be uh, willing to overpay for the in order to purchase um, Amazon. Similarly, they may um, neglect kind of the more boring solar-growing stocks like Hewlett-Packard or Lexmark. Investors should look for funds that charge significantly less than actively managed alternatives and that have a simple, transparent methodology. Complexity is often a sign of data mining. Uh, remember, there's only a handful of strategies that have been really well vetted by the academic community, and those are the ones that I mentioned. So if you're looking at a strategy that does something more complex, it's worth being skeptical of, of that strategy. Um, also, it's important to remember that a lot of times there are similar alternatives that offer comparable exposure for a lower fee. So we like to see transparency. We like to see low fees with these smart beta ETFs. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. 
The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. Uh, Alex, I have a follow-up question to that because uh, one thing that you spoke about regarding those ETFs, that was risks. So you're saying that might even be like lower risk, it might be higher risk. But how do you define risk when you're talking about something like an ETF? It's a great question. So there's a lot of ways to define risk, but I, I think the most useful is uh, probability of loss and uh, magnitude of loss when it does occur. Um, you know, it's, it's difficult to get a handle on how do you measure risk. One way we like to look at risk is um, volatility. So looking at how much an ETF or a fund moves around, the more volatile a fund is, the wider the dispersion and possible outcomes. So the greater the probability of loss is. Another way that a lot of investors look at risk is tracking error or the risk of underperforming the market for an extended period of time. Now, when you take any of these smart beta type bets, such as buying stocks that are cheap, there's a risk that, you know, these things, even though, even if they work well over the very long term, they can underperform for many years. So if I'm an investor in these strategies, I have to be comfortable with that risk of potentially underperforming uh, during a, a potentially bad time. You know, value, it looks really great if you go all the way back to the 1920s, but during the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, value strategies underperformed because they were overweight in financials. 
So you have to be comfortable with these risks that you're taking on uh, and, and really have a long-term horizon to profit from them. Yeah, that last part is the is the real important part. I think a lot of people, they think, oh, well, I'm making these decisions and I'm going to hold it for five years. And they think that that's long term. But I think that, you know, you look at a guy like Buffett and Charlie Munger and all these other just amazing financial investors that, that use a value approach. I mean, they're truly buying it to own it forever. They they're buying it as an equity purchase and they don't ever plan on selling it. So um, I, I yeah, that last point's very important. Yeah, and uh, and keep speaking about risk, and this is really an interesting topic. Alex, would you say that by investing in ETFs, which is like hundreds of companies, you are actually uh, limiting your risk, partly because you are investing in a huge amount of companies, but also because you might be buying ETFs in larger companies that might be less risky? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So uh, to the extent that stocks in a portfolio are not perfectly correlated, you can reduce your overall risk by combining them in a portfolio, right? So uh, that's because these stocks, their volatility can offset one another to a certain extent. So let's take a really simple example. Let's say you have two companies. One just makes sunblock, another just makes umbrellas. Uh, the umbrella company is is going to have a lot of sales at a time when the sunblock company was is going to have low sales and vice versa. Um, so this idea of combining stocks into a, a portfolio uh, is useful from that perspective. You you tend to offset your gains and losses by having a lot of different companies that are uh, not perfectly correlated with one another. Uh, so an ETF is useful because it reduces this risk. It spreads this risk out among a large number of companies. Now, there's a lot of different ways that you can make targeted bets of ETFs. So there's ETFs that target small cap stocks. There's ETFs that target the broad market. Um, Anytime you're deviating from a a broad market ETF, you are taking on potentially more risk. So for example, investing in a small cap ETF will tend to be more volatile than a large cap ETF. And that's because small cap companies do tend to be more sensitive to the business cycle than their large cap counterparts. Uh, But in any case, diversification is always a good plan, no matter what you're doing. You're not paid to take on company specific risks. So if I just hold one company in my portfolio, I'm taking a lot of risks that I could have diversified away had I held the stock in a broader portfolio. So that's not that's not a necessary risk. I want to get rid of that risk to the extent that I can by using a diversified ETF or a diversified mutual fund. And I think for the, for the audience, I think a lot of people need to understand that your your most important thing you've got to do is protect your principal. Um, for these people that go out there and think that the most important thing to do is to get a seven or seventy percent return for the year, uh, that's fun and that's exciting and that's really uh, awesome if you can do it in one year. But the fact of the matter is, is that person who can protect their principal and minimize their losses is probably the the most important thing you can do because if you can grow it at ten or twenty percent every year and on on the down years only lose maybe one to three percent. That's a person who's really going to have enormous amount of financial success because typically the person who has that 70% year, the following year, they have a a negative 120% loss uh, that they don't tell you about. So um, this this discussion about risk mitigation, how do I protect my principal is something that separates professional investors, insiders from people that uh, are just really amateurs and don't know what they're doing. So uh, great discussion there on the on the risk. Uh, Stig, you had mm-hmm. something you wanted to say? 
Yeah, because you know, I I I don't own own any ETFs myself, but I think the whole idea of a pa- passive managed ETF is that for most investors a really good idea, because um, when you hear about these people who are making like as Preston saying seventy percent a year, that is impossible if you own like an ETF, almost impossible because you might be owning like a hundred shares, and these guys who are making like seventy or hundred percent a year, they might only be holding one or two say a tech stock for instance. So they're taking huge risk, which you don't see, you only see and hear about the returns. Uh, and as Preston saying, you know, next year the might go broke. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And actually Stig, if I can jump in. So uh, absolutely mitigating risk on the downside, that's where, that separates the professionals from the amateurs. Yep. Um, you, you really, it, it's really difficult to overcome a, a large loss because, you know, a lot of investors don't have the emotional fortitude to stick with uh, a portfolio through those painful times. And if you stick to an index portfolio, that can help take the emotion out of the equation. You don't have to worry about, you know, is this manager someone I should fire because they've underperformed in this year? You're really sticking with, um, you know, this broad-based index portfolio. And that I think will serve investors well over the long term. Yep. Hey, so I got a question for you. And I know I actually do not like being asked these kind of questions. So I apologize if, if you don't want to answer the first part of this question. I completely understand. But I'm going to throw it out there anyway, because I'm just curious if you will answer it. Um, if not, then we'll just focus on the second part. Uh, so the question is this. Uh, what are your top two favorite ETFs and why? Uh, for example, uh, maybe you could throw out there because they have a certain expense ratio. They have a good track record. The bid ask ratio is good, whatever. Um and if you're not comfortable naming that, we completely understand. Um, but what would be your thought process? How would you go through kind of assessing it at a very generic and high level? How would you go through assessing the the pick of an ETF? So one of the funds that I like is Schwab U.S. Dividend Equity ETF, ticker SCHD. And that targets dividend paying stocks with uh, high cash flow relative to their debts, high return in equity, high dividend yields, and a high five-year dividend growth rate. This gives it a both a quality tilt and a value tilt, uh, which may help it perform a little bit better than the market during downturns. So we talked about uh, mitigating downside risk or reducing the risk of substantial losses. I think this is a fund that can help investors uh, weather market downturns better than, than most. Um, and as a result, that may help boost its long-term performance. So those are some of the reasons why I like this particular fund. But one of the best things about this fund is this expense ratio, which is only seven basis points, or $7 for every $10,000 that you invest in it. That's comparably priced to a traditional S&P 500 index fund. So I talked about the importance of looking for smart beta funds that are not much more than traditional index alternatives. This is one which is priced right at uh, the low end of you know your traditional S&P 500 index funds. So for those reasons, I think that's a a pretty solid core holding for investors in the U.S. In the international arena, I like uh, Schwab Fundamental International Large Company ETF. Ticker on that is FNDF. This focuses on developed market stocks outside of the U.S. And I think right now valuations uh, in developed markets outside the U.S. are more attractive than U.S. market valuations. This fund uh, basically weights its holdings based on fundamental measures of size, including sales, um, retained operating cash flows, and dividends plus share buybacks. This causes it to overweight stocks that are cheap and underweight stocks that are expensive relative to these metrics. 
when this fund rebalances, it increases its exposure to stocks that have become cheaper against these metrics and relative to their peers, and it trends positions in stocks that have become more expensive. So essentially, it's a value strategy, but one of the things I really like about it is it's one of the cheapest international value funds available. Uh, it does charge a 32, uh, I'm sorry, a 32 basis expense ratio, which is a little bit more than what you would have to pay for a U.S. value fund, but in the international arena, it's one of the cheaper options available. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com WSB. That's fundrise.com WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. 
Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. Wow, Alex, that was, uh, that was some great tips. And uh, I don't know if Chris and I should, <laughs> should check, that, check that out as well. Um, do you have any idea of the performance over the last, say, 10 years or something like that? Actually, so these two funds have not been around for 10 years. Um, I believe they're both launched within the last, well, I know the, the Schwab Fundamental International Large Company Fund was just launched, I think, in the last year or so. Um, the Schwab U.S. Dividend Equity ETF has been around for, I think, four years or so. Um, so we don't have a, a 10-year track record. We have the record of their indexes, and their index records have been good. But again, I like to discount back-tested performance and look at the live track record to the extent possible. Um, but in any case, I think the strategies that these funds pursue is very reasonable. They're both taking a value tilt, buying stocks that are cheap, and historically that strategy has worked pretty well. The U.S. dividend equity fund also looks for high-quality dividend-paying stocks, stocks that have good profitability. Um, these are stocks that tend to be a little bit more mature, a little bit more stable, and could potentially weather market downturns better than most. So I think the strategy is reasonable. The expenses are attractive. Our expense ratios are low. Uh, so for those reasons, I would feel comfortable owning both of those. And in fact, I do own both of these uh, funds, full disclosure. Fantastic. Uh, that, that's phenomenal. And so for people, if you don't know what uh, basis points are, so he was saying it was, it was seven basis points. So if you're talking a 1% fee, for this, it would be a 0.07% fee whenever you say it's seven basis points, just to kind of give you an idea of how low these the, the fees are on these funds that he's talking about. Okay, Alex, I mean, you're you're providing us just fantastic information here. This is awesome. Um, so this is a question that we like to ask all of our guests. Uh, what's the best investing advice you have ever received? Uh, so keep costs low. If you look at uh, the evidence behind uh the link between expenses that you pay and performance, there's no clearer link. Um, the higher your fees are, the less money you keep and the worse your performance is going to be. It's really important to keep costs low so that you can keep more of the money that you earn. That compounds over time and can uh, give you a, a long-term performance edge. That's one of the reasons I like Vanguard so much because they price all of their funds at cost. And I think that gives investors a, a long-term edge. But it's very difficult to beat a market cap weighted benchmark after fees. So I think it's really, really important just to keep costs low. I can't hammer that enough. Great answer, Alex. Um, and in continuation of this, another question that I really like to ask our guests is if there's any good books that they can recommend. And especially because you're an expert in indexes, perhaps you have a good book recommendation about that. Absolutely. So the little book of Common Sense Investing by John Bogle, I think, is one of the best books on index investing. Uh, John Bogle is the founder of Vanguard. Um, and again, like I mentioned, Vanguard basically prices all of their funds at cost. The mutual fund owners in Vanguard actually own Vanguard itself, which is why it's able to do this. Um, but this book, the little book of Common Sense Investing, basically explains that active management is a zero-sum game. So it's a loser's game if you want to try to beat the market because in order for one person to win, someone else has to lose. And in aggregate, there's no benefit to that. The only way that you as an individual investor can really win consistently is by keeping costs low uh, through a 
a low cost index fund. So I think this book does a really good job of walking through that intuition and helping investors understand uh, what some of those benefits are of owning a low cost index fund. Yeah, you're not going to find a better uh, author than Bogle. So uh, for everybody out there, I would definitely second uh, his uh, Alex's recommendation here with this book. So uh, great recommendation. Hey, Alex, it was it was really fun having you on the show. We really appreciate you taking time out of your day to uh, talk to our audience and just kind of share all the knowledge because you're just a wealth of information here. And we just really appreciate you sharing that with our audience. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right, so it's that time where we're going to go ahead and answer one of the questions from the people in our audience. And so this question comes from Chris Shaw, and Chris says, I've listened to the book on CD, Warren Buffett and the Interpretation of Financial Statements, and it explains the importance of finding a durable competitive advantage. In the very beginning, it states that you should really know accounting before picking stocks. How much accounting should be considered a full degree or, or what? So, uh, Stig, what's your opinion? Well, Chris, it was a, it's really a great question. I think if you want to uh, to go into individual stock pick uh, picks, I think you should be proficient in in uh, in accounting and how much I'll just return to. But if you're more into ETFs, as uh, Alex, our guest was, then you probably don't need to be as proficient in accounting. Um, I think the problem about answering this question is that you cannot, you know, just put a a value on that. I mean, you're asking, do you need to have an degree? Uh, to do I need? Do we need to have a degree in accounting? And no, you definitely don't need to have a degree in, uh, in accounting. Um, but how much do you need to know? Well, I would say that if you know how to read the income statement, the balance sheet, and the cash flow statement, if you can go through those three statements for a company and understand at least 95% of what's happening, I think you are probably uh, well off. And then when we're talking about key ratios, because there are so many investors that are big on key ratios, and yeah, I'm, I'm big on key ratio as well, but I think it's really important that you understand how these key ratios are calculated and how they can be manipulated. So I think that would probably be my benchmark in terms of, of accounting proficiency. So understanding at least 95% of the three big financial statements, and then the most common key ratios and how they can be manipulated. So I agree with Stig. Um, I've got the exact same opinion. I, I think if you're investing in individual stock picks and you don't have a, a firm grasp on accounting, you're probably assuming a lot of risk. I guess that's the best way I could say it. Um, if I know for me personally, my understanding of accounting greatly increased ever since I started my own business and I own my own business. And I was actually creating an income statement. I was creating a balance sheet and I saw how money would flow from one statement to the other statement and how the cash flow statement worked. Whenever I started doing that myself, my understanding and my knowledge of it just went through the roof and it just started really making a lot of sense for me. And I think for a lot of people, they don't own their own business. And so whenever they look at an income statement, balance sheet or cash flow statement, it looks like an alien language to them and they just don't really understand how it's all correlated. But it's like plumbing, okay? The, the money flows from one statement over to the other statement, and you have to understand how that's linked and what it means as you look at statement to statement. And I, and I'm, I guess I'm of the opinion, if you don't understand that fully and you're investing in individual stock picks, um, you're, you're really assuming a lot of risk by doing that. Yeah, and Chris, that was probably an even better answer than what I came up with because it's it's really not enough that you know how to uh, to read an income statement, for instance. You need to know how that income statement interacts with the balance sheet and how the balance sheet interacts with the cash flow statements. 
So, uh, yeah, Preston, that was a great answer. Thank you, sir. <laughs> hey, so uh, that's all we got for today. Uh, we're, we're obviously having fun here, and we really enjoy your questions. So if you guys have any questions, go to asktheinvestors.com and submit your questions there. Record them. We really like recorded questions, so re- record your questions. Uh, send those off to us. We're going to go ahead and put a free signed copy of our book, the Warren Buffett Accounting Book, in the mail for you, Chris, and we'll get that to you shortly. So uh, thanks, everybody, for listening to us, and we really like to thank our guests for coming on the show today, Alex Brian, uh, and we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to The Investor's Podcast. To listen to more shows or access to the tools discussed on the show, be sure to visit www.theinvestorspodcast.com. Submit your questions or request a guest appearance to The Investor's Podcast by going to www.asktheinvestors.com. If your question is answered during the show, you will receive a free autographed copy of the Warren Buffett Accounting Book. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This material is copyrighted by the TIP Network and must have written approval before commercial application.